Welcome to the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. The world is changing faster than ever, and the world of education is too. Advances in psychology, biology, and a whole range of other fields have opened up new lines of thought about the purpose of school and how it can best serve a new generation of students. Join me on the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast every week to explore these new ideas. In our last episode, we spoke with Garson Carroll, a local personal fitness trainer who works with Braemar students in advanced fitness modalities. Welcome back to the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. I'm Mike Helsby. Very, very happy to be joined once again today by my friend and colleague, Miss Rebecca Bitten, uh, who's going to be talking to us today a little bit about the concepts of overwhelm and burnout, especially as they relate to our students in this moment of very high stress. We are heading into our first term exams here at Braemar coming up in just a few days. So myself and Miss Bitten and the other teachers here at Braemar are getting a, a firsthand view of what these concepts look like playing out in the lives of our students. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I love I love being here. I love being in this podcast. Love this school. Thank you so much for setting this up. What an amazing opportunity. We love having you. And I mean, it's just so nice to have somebody uh, like yourself with, as we've said in the past, this diverse range of experiences that give you a real I think expert perspective on what these students are going through, what's happening in their brains and in their bodies as they prepare for what what is for many teenagers the the most important thing that they do, the most important mm-hmm. day of of their year. It may not necessarily seem like that. They may not report that, but boy, when you look at things like stress markers and behavior changes and just what you know the looks on their faces this week, <laughs> you can tell this is uh, a crucial week for them. They're going to be writing. Um, exams that are that are worth, in some cases, the difference between entrance into the university they want to get into, or perhaps not. Um, you know, where things like the the pride and the the esteem of their parents or their friends, right? The ability to to move on in their in their high school career and feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. There's so much that hinges on this moment, and so with, without further ado, I want to dig right into some of the most important concepts related to. Uh, exam study stress and just the the day-to-day stress that that these students are going through Uh, in your professional profile you uh, you are not just a teacher you are a uh, mental health coach Um, I'm gonna ask you to talk a little bit about that but in the profile it also talks about focusing on dealing with overwhelm and dealing with burnout so what, what are you doing outside of school with, uh, with Be and Become, with your, with your mental health coaching? And especially, what are overwhelm and burnout, and, and how are you approaching them uh, in that practice? So actually, what turned me on to this notion of, of mental wellness coaching and what made it to be um, uh, not just a passion, but a big, a big purpose of mine is that I started to recognize, especially in the entrepreneurial world, which I've been for quite a few years, is we tend to be in this, like you were, like we were talking about earlier, this overly complex world where, especially now after COVID, we're seeing there's a lot of overlap between our work world and our personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and those limitations are, are, and boundaries are starting to kind of dissipate. And so what tends to happen is we start rolling into this lifestyle where we're always on. And I see this a lot um, with my clients, especially with my clients that have 
uh, mental uh, illnesses such as bipolar disorder where they're feeling like they are very overly ambitious or they have uh, what I'm noticing a lot with um, adults and my clients that are uh, that are adults. Um, they often have a lot of things like what we now have been using this term of, you know, having a side hustle. Um, it's actually very interesting that statistically since COVID, there's been a huge surge of people that have started businesses. And a lot of people have actually started businesses on top of their full-time job. So we're actually working now more than ever. Mm-hmm. And so I really, really got turned on to this concept of what is actually work. And I've always known that we've lived in a work culture, um, but it's it's becoming something else. And I'm noticing that it's starting to become, has a lot to do with the fabric of what we define ourselves as. So we identify with our work. We identify with what we do. Um, and that started to uh, that started to affect me as well in my own mental health, where I started to define myself by what I did as a professional, um, which kind of dissipated my purpose. And mm-hmm. so I started to kind of reconnect with this purpose of helping other people find their purpose um, and having that purposeful occupation where they're doing something that they truly love. Um, and that's when we can actually see a lot of cure of over of overwhelm because we're not just doing anymore. Um, we're actually being and becoming, which is why I, I titled my program Be and Become because one of the things that I think of when in, in my educator role is that that's actually a big part of who I am. I'm not just a teacher by profession, but I'm also an educator as a person. This is what I love to do. I love raising the potential of others. And I love being able to enrich the minds of the students and clients that I'm I'm privileged to work with. So, so that's why I'm here. And I'm so happy that we're having this discussion about overwhelm because it really robs us of so many of the precious things in life that are really we're getting a lot of shortage of, such as joy. Um, you know, I was just talking to you about how I was having fun in, in this uh, playground downtown, and it, it really brought to life that we're losing a little bit of our childlike enthusiasm. We're losing our, our zest for life. We're, we're in this kind of constant um, exchange of, of, you know, what we have to do, and our lives seem to be driven by this never-ending to-do list. And we're seeing that both on you know, the adult side with our parents and, and, and us, some of us who are becoming parents, as well as our students. So it's really across the board. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that is great about podcasts like these is that we can share strategies um, and, and tools and resources that allow our students to build the skills that they need so that when they get to our age and they become these these adults, they can actually navigate through this overly complex world in a way that is healthy and sustainable so that they can become who they're meant to become. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope that that's what this podcast does, even if it's the only thing that it does. I, I want students and whoever listens to this to know that like you and I sitting here, the the teachers in the students' lives, the parents in the children's lives, like that we're all experiencing this, what I think is is a modern phenomenon, but mm-hmm. the sense that in some grand way we are inadequate to, to the demands of our lives, that we must hustle and grind and push and mm-hmm. and and experience pain and, and make sacrifices in the name of capital S success, right? Mm. Whatever that is, we, we have uh, this this ongoing issue, I think, caused by, by modern media and social media, where we, we believe that we are 
that we deserve to be observed, that we almost conduct our lives in the in front of an audience, mm. and and so much of ourself becomes performative rather than authentic. Mm. Uh, we we give up those those primal pleasures, those natural, you know, often childlike joys, which I think if we to, were to take a step back and look at, we would admit are are more authentic to our being and perhaps more beneficial to our health than the grind, than than you know getting that next comma in the in the salary or whatever it is you're, you're pursuing um, and very quickly even as I'm talking about this I can feel the over complexity of the issue sort of <laughs> beginning to cut off some of those creative realms that I would have wanted to take this conversation in and I become worried that I'm, I'm missing out on on some key point that we really need to express and and all of a sudden you know the the combination of fear insecurity whatever else you want to call it ha- can, can overwhelm Mm-hmm. can overwhelm my, even my capacity to have a, a natural conversation with you about this topic. The the one thing that I want to say before I forget it, when you were talking about entrepreneurialism and the massive growth in entrepreneurialism in our society, especially since COVID, my sense, having witnessed a number of close friends engage in this process, you know, become their own boss, mm-hmm. take control of their lives, whatever uh, cliche you want to use, they're pursuing freedom. Right? They're pursuing a version of freedom. And I'm reminded of this this uh, this famous Soren Kierkegaard quote: "The anxiety is the dizziness of freedom." Mm, right? I love that. We jump into this thing thinking that now I'm going to have control and and life will go on my terms and and you know mm-hmm. it's it's nothing but upwards momentum from here, and all of a sudden we're almost flooded with anxiety. <laughs> right? How ironic! The anxiety being the dizziness of freedom. Um, bringing it back to the, to the level of students, we're sitting here at Braemar with. Uh, probably those, maybe they're thinking of entrepreneurialism in their future, but the big challenge right now is getting through these exams. Can we go right down to basics and just talk about what exactly is overwhelm from a subjective and maybe even from a from a neurochemical objective perspective, uh, as well as burnout? What, is, what does that feel like in the life of a young person? Yeah, so it, it's very interesting. Uh, when I think about overwhelm, I often find that a lot of us believe that overwhelm is almost incidental. That, you know, we it's it's a moment where we're in class and all of a sudden we're starting to sweat and our, our, our breath gets really short and we're having this attack, that it's this kind of thing that happens. Um, what I've noticed in my experience, both as an educator as well as a coach, is that Overwhelm is actually something that is a buildup process. So the overwhelm, even though it feels, sometimes it feels like like an incident, like, like it happens to us, a lot of the time I actually consider overwhelm to be a last straw mm. emotion. So generally speaking, and this is why I like to ensure that, especially in a classroom, one of the things that we really need to focus on is the fact that our entire term should actually be paced out in a way that prepares our students for this moment. So you were talking about how incredibly momentous and important and critical these moments are in the exam period. And the way I see it is almost like the way an athlete would see you know, their Olympics mm-hmm. or their competition, right? It's not like they arrive at the competition a week before and say, cool, I'm ready. I hope everything goes well, right? There needs to be a regular training towards that, right? And so this is why actually I'm very happy that in our educational system, we've started to incorporate the importance of process work. Mm-hmm. So now we're not just given, you know, these really big deadlines that 
on their own just look extremely daunting and, t- and intimidating that can actually um, almost paralyze us before yes. we even start to produce anything, which is very characteristic of overwhelm is that there's, the, I, I actually look at overwhelm as two things. So sometimes we have external stressors, which we tend to forget with students, I realize as well, is that their stressors aren't just in the classroom. Most of their stressors are actually outside of the classroom. So especially with our students um, being international students, right, they have stressors from their parents overseas, they have stressors from their friends, they have stressors, especially now um, with so much technology, their attention is being broken so many ways. Um, and so even just the, the pileup of external stressors is enough to produce this overwhelm. And so the overwhelm in terms of its sensations, a lot of it has to do with uh, shortness of breath, um, tightness in the chest, racing thoughts, um, unexplained and undue physical tiredness, which I think goes really undetected. Um, I I used to feel the same way I remember in university a lot. When I was feeling overly stressed out and people would ask me what's wrong, I would just say, I'm tired. And I would go and I would take a nap. And it's very interesting. We always saw this stereotype of teenagers constantly taking naps. And it's one of those things where to me, that's actually a warning sign. Because if they're having a full eight hours of sleep, they shouldn't need a nap every couple hours. Yeah. And a lot of the time, and I see this with students too, sometimes they even nap in the cl- in class. Um, and I think that's actually an escapist. So it's too. an escapist mechanism, yeah. right? And so this is, these are the things that we need to kind of pick up on. But generally speaking, we also talked about some other symptoms that might come up. So for example, uh, this notion of the freeze-flight Um, or fight situation. So different students will deal with overwhelm in different ways. There are students that will feel the the stress of their parents and so they want to carry that burden and they might try and push through. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in this case, they might have uh, moments where uh, they could have a lapse in memory. They could have a lapse in speech. Sometimes they, that, you know, they'll lose their words or they'll get really, you know, riled up in different ways. Or they might be working on one task and then skip to another really quickly, and they're just kind of scattered. Yeah. There is that response that I've seen a lot. There's also others that are just in that total freeze mode, and we kind of get that that blank stare that we see in our students' faces sometimes. And not, and that, you know, and sometimes we chalk that up to them not understanding the material, but as I was explaining a little earlier, is that, you know, sometimes it's actually a sign of overwhelm, right? Which, you know, we, 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 we recognize it when we're thinking of things like shock, right? When someone is in shock, uh, I remember when I was doing some first aid training, that was one of the biggest symptoms. They just look frozen, mm-hmm. right? And, and we know why that is. There's, there's biological markers that we talk about that, that create that response. So all of these can be um, symptoms and signs of overwhelm. But the biggest message I want to send about overwhelm is that it's something that needs to be detected on an earlier basis. So, And this is one of the things, too, that we also need to teach our students how to detect it in themselves. So one of the things that I coach my, my clients on is to check in with themselves on a, on a periodic basis throughout the day. So actually do a check-in with their bodies and say, so like, am I feeling any stress 
in any part of my body. So we'll do like a body scan. You know, a lot of the time, most anxiety is usually felt in the chest or in the stomach. So some people feel queasy. Some people feel, I know for myself, when I'm feeling kind of riled up or I feel like I'm in too many places at once or my mind's in too many places at once, I usually feel a tightness in my chest. Mm. And that's when I know when I need to slow down and that's when I know I need to take a few deep breaths. But it's one of those things where we need to check in, right? Because if we don't, the latent feelings of anxiety are the precursors to overwhelm. So the overwhelm doesn't just happen. It's because of a prolonged um, disregard for a buildup of emotions, anxieties, fears, panics, stress, um, all of these feelings that build, right? right? Build and then kind of bring this chasm of, of overwhelm that we see. So if, if a, a young person is, is regularly or chronically feeling um, or put, getting into that fight, flight, or freeze state, then that can lead to a more persistent state of, of what we're calling overwhelm or burnout. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I truly believe that it's a last straw, that I, do, I don't believe that people are just overwhelmed in a moment. Mm-hmm. I do believe that it is something that, that, does, that does build up um, over a period of time if it's, not, if it's not taken care of. Yeah. I think there's, there's two massive things that we're really, really missing, um, I guess, just in popular culture. We end up using words like lazy mm. and like procrastinate when we see a student who is, to our eyes, in that shock state, doing nothing, right? Or putting their head down on their desk and sleeping. When I think the, the disconnect is that we fail to realize those behaviors are adaptive, mm. that those are things this student has picked up on probably years ago in direct response to stimuli that its body took to be threatening, mm. right? Um Obviously, work around ADHD is ongoing, and, and I'm, I'm, I can't wait for five to ten years from now when they really have that breakthrough and we're able to say, this is ADHD and this is not. These are its causes and these are not. But until that day, what it looks like to me is that these students who end up exhibiting a lot of the symptoms you just described, the thinking about 20 things at once instead of being able to think of one thing, fidgeting, freezing, um, dissociating, etc., these are adaptations that were likely developed by the child in response to being given responsibilities or information that were too complex for them or that they couldn't understand. The most obvious example I can think of is a Braemar student who is in an ESL class who's coming, they're on their language learning journey, right? They're halfway there and they're regularly being spoken to in English, maybe by peers or, or, or by people in the hall or on the street. Uh, at a at a pace or at a complexity that they don't understand. Now, the healthiest response to that would be the person admitting to themselves that they don't understand and seeking out help and resources so that they can gradually catch up to that level. But how many children have the, the tools and the self-awareness that I know you're trying to instill in many of them to do that? So instead, what do they do? If you're in a classroom, you got your, your response to a threat, fight, flight, or freeze. Can they fight? Of course not, right? You can't stand up and punch your teacher for, for being too complex, right? Please, please don't. Um, can you flee? Can you run? No, you're stuck in your class, right? So what do you do? You freeze, 
and you adopt many of the symptoms that we now identify with with ADHD. And when that becomes an adaptive response to an instructor standing up in front of you or to dealing with someone in a specific language or a specific setting, we, we, we can call it a lot of different things, but it sure sounds like what we're what we're talking about today. Yeah, I also really love the fact that you brought in the words that we use, right? This notion of, oh, they're lazy or they're procrastinating. It's very interesting because, as you say, it is all, it's also an adaptive, um, it's an adaptive internalization of who we are as well. I see this a lot um, with my clients too, where they actually feel that they're being lazy when they don't, when they're not constantly productive. Mm -hmm. And that I think actually came from, from, from their experience as a student where their, where their teacher might've judged them to be that way. And so it's interesting because I find that the reason why a lot of people and students especially, especially students who don't actually speak up and say, hey, I actually need help or I don't know what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. Like, can you just run it by me? And I think that it's because they are, they are bred in this tradition of judgment. So these words of, oh, you're being lazy or, oh, this person's not trying hard enough or anything, these are judgment claims, right? Mm -hmm. And so instead, and, and we always know that anytime that we're judging something, we're always losing an understanding, right? We're, we're actually robbing ourselves of the opportunity to understand, yeah. right? Uh, I truly believe that judgment is the thief of empathy, if you can think of it, right? I'm writing it down. <laughs> That's how I feel. And, and I find that every time, you know, every time we judge anybody, whether it's a student, we're always robbing ourselves from the opportunity to build that bridge, yeah. right? And so I've, I've actually called, I ha sometimes I have to call my students out and say, hey, you know what? Like I, even just today, I had a student, she was away for a few days. And, you know, as teachers were like, well, they should be following up on their modules. They should be doing this. They should be doing that. And if they're not doing that, well, then that's out of our responsibility and they should know better. Yeah. Right. And I think that, that, that talks a lot about what you were just saying earlier that, you know, we have these younger kids and we keep saying as parents or as, or as administrators or any other, uh, you know, authority figure or, or educator figure. And we say, well, they should just know better. Right. But we're starting to lose the, the connection where it's like, well, why, why should they know better? Did we teach them any better? Um, have they practiced any better? So I find that a lot of the time, it's not that they have a lack of self-awareness. I think it's fear mm -hmm. of being judged. Nobody wants to, and adults do this too. Nobody wants to stand up and say, I don't get it. Yeah. You know? And the funny thing is, is when we do get those people who say, I don't get it, we, we start to get all these other people who say, well, we don't get it either. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then it's like, well, then how come none of you said anything? And we're all just so worried about being judged mm -hmm. about this. And I think that that's also a remnants of what you were saying earlier, that we kind of have this this strange performative feel where, you know, we feel like we need to perform in a certain way. And and that happens a lot with teenagers, too. Right. They're building their ego. I, I would say right? especially with teenagers, like uniquely with teenagers, we know 
the, the psychological traits that separate a teenager or an adolescent from an adult are focused on two key concepts. One is um, a willingness to embrace risk. So they're far mm. more, uh, far, far less risk averse than an adult. You can understand why with the lack of development in the, the prefrontal cortex. The other one is a hypersensitivity to status hierarchies, mm-hmm. right? Which isn't to say that we as adults aren't constantly comparing ourselves to others and keeping up with the Joneses and all that. But if you recall what it's like to be a teenager, the biggest stress in my life day to day consistently wasn't that I was about to get tackled on the football field or I was about to fail a test, but that somehow in the unspoken pecking order of my social surroundings, I was going to fall down a peg. I was going to do something embarrassing or, or be called out in some way or made to seem weak or uncool, whatever that means, in some way. And someone was going to get ahead of me in the, in the social order. I, I distinctly remember, I don't know how universal this experience is, but in my middle school, there were, no joke, there were eight boys and eight girls who were the cool kids in my grade. And it was almost like they got together and there was like some cabal where they like took a vote and they said, we need to fill this quota and there can be no more and no less. And everybody knew it. It mm-hmm. wasn't up for debate, right? And I, I think all of which is to say that that, that hypersensitivity to status hierarchies plays a, goes a long way in the silence of, of suffering students, right? We know Henry David Thoreau, uh, most men live lives of quiet desperation, right? And I think of the the funny videos that you can watch online, the the sheeple, if you see a group of people standing at a, a street light waiting to cross and there's no cars coming, they're all looking, nobody's moving. And then one person goes and then five and then everyone, right? All, and that's exactly what you're describing. I think when, when one student, if they are given the tools, the resources, the space, the trust to be able to raise their hand and say, I'm not quite sure what you mean. Where, where is this in the book? Did we study this before? I, I feel bad. I'm sorry that, I, that I'm interrupting, but is anyone else confused? How helpful would that be to, to not just that student, but all of their peers, right? Mm-hmm. And as you say, you're, you're almost guaranteed to see five hands go up after that. So what can we do as educators, as parents, as, as people in the lives of, of others who are going through overwhelm and burnout to give them that, that ability to raise their hand or express uncertainty? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually have written down a few things, um, some some interesting little uh, little 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 tactics that we can employ uh, specifically in the classroom, but on a on a broader sense, we can do as well. I find accountability helps a lot. So what I like to tell my students, and I generally teach classes in communications, English, uh, business, and social studies, and so most of our assessments are generally long term assessments. So say, for example, uh, an essay or, um, you know, right now we're doing culminating assignments. And these are longer assignments, right? They're, they're a little bit on the heavier side. So I always want to make sure that they understand that even though the assignment seems big, it's actually really just um, a series of checkpoints. Mm-hmm. So I'll make them into checkpoints. And so I'll say, okay... You know, in this work period, if we're going to if I'm going to give you this work period, I want to know that in the next hour and a half, you're going to have this essay outline done. Right. And, and I'll, I'll hold them to it mm. and I'll say, OK, 
let me see what you've done so far. And I always make sure they understand that this is not a judgment. I'm not judging them for how much they've gotten done. This is also for teachers to understand how long it takes a student to carry out the task as well. Um, I noticed actually as well, when you were talking a little bit about students who have ADD and ADHD, I actually spoke to a couple of my students who, who do identify to have that condition. One of the things that they said was very helpful is they'll put together a timer and they, they, they actually break up their tasks into very, very micro chunks. Um, and they'll actually put a timer and say, okay, in the next five minutes, I'm going to write down four sentences. And they'll time themselves. And that somehow the the timing, it's, it's interesting because normally you would think the timing would add more anxiety. For them, it's actually an incentive where it's like, okay, great. I've got two more minutes. Better get my next two sentences out. Mm-hmm. And it keeps them on track. So for me, I think the biggest thing is pacing. It's really, really a pace because if we start to look at this exam or this culminating assignment as like a sprint where it's like, okay, well, I only have a couple of days to do this, better grind and better, you know, cram, as we used to say. Yeah. It, our bodies are not designed to cram, no. right? Uh, if you see, you know, it's very interesting when we see athletes or celebrities or speakers or anybody that we consider to be amazing and high performance people, what we don't see is all the preparation that happened before. So we see this amazing concert. We don't realize they've auditioned for that concert for the last year. So so in the same way, we have to treat these, these critical moments with preparation mm-hmm. and process um, and really just encouraging the process, right? Um, one thing I was telling my students today is I'll say, you know, they were, I, I asked them, I'm like, so how much have you guys done in this assignment? And one of them was telling me, you know, I haven't done much because I have this other assignment in this class. And I'm like, well, no, actually, it's much better that you do a little bit of five assignments on a daily basis. Yeah. It's much more efficient because if you start to put all your, you know, all your eggs in one basket and then you move to your next assignment, nothing is done. Even just the fact that you're working from scratch, that already is an internal stressor, right? It's mm-hmm. like it's like a classic thing. I mean, I'm I like to consider myself a writer, and I know that whenever I speak to other writers, the most daunting thing is a blank page, a blank page. Oh, right? Yeah. So I don't have any more blank pages, yeah. right? I've got you know pages with notes, and it could be the most random notes ever, but at least I'm not starting from zero. Yeah. Right. You use the metaphor of uh, sprinting, which I think is, is so appropriate to this, because you said uh, the, the, the human body is not designed to cram. Right. The human body is not designed to sprint. Right. Our great evolutionary advantage is we are great endurance. We are great endurers, I suppose you could say. Um, so the, the how perfectionism plays into all of that and the idea of I need to get this one thing done and I need to bang my head against this wall until it's done and then I'll think about the next thing. It's not what we're designed to do, right? Our, our, our brains are designed, as you said, to, to take a discrete task for a short period of time, put ourselves to it, and then restore for, mm-hmm. for a short period. I've seen um, uh, professors describing the metacognitive process with a, an XY graph that starts very, very high on the Y axis. And it says, this is your mental energy. And mm-hmm. the, uh, the Y axis would be time. 
sorry, yeah, the X axis would be time. Um, and what we try to do when we sprint or what we try to do when we cram is get from here to here with that attention remaining high. And we just can't, we do this, right? And so they talk about things like the Pomodoro technique or what you've just described as, as kind of those, those timed five minute chunks. I think Pomodoro goes something like it's either 45, 15 or 25, five, but you give yourself that amount of time. I'm going to put myself to this task with the understanding that when that timer dings, I'm done and I can do something I enjoy for a little bit. So you're getting that dopamine motivation, which drives you into the task. You're also, instead of, you can only see this on the camera, obviously, but instead of moving across the x-axis and slowly declining towards a zero mental energy, you the second you begin to decline, you take that rest, pop back up. The second you begin mm -hmm. to decline, half an hour later, take that rest, pop back up, and over time, he does it, I think the, what I've seen done is over a six-hour period, with that technique, you can get five hours and 10 minutes or five hours and 15 minutes of study done as compared to if you just tried to put your head to that wall for six hours straight, you're going to get maybe an hour before you experience overwhelm, burnout, absolute lack of motivation. You hit the wall. You know, that's another running metaphor, mm -hmm. but whatever you want to call. And then if you, again, if you add into that mix, this, I think, largely culturally insistent idea of perfectionism. Right? that I'm not going to be rewarded unless this thing is perfect, even if I don't know what perfect is, even mm -hmm. if I'm 16 and I'm just kind of guessing what my teacher wants. It's, it, you've used the word paralyzing. It's absolutely paralyzing. And it happens to, it happens to our best students along, oh, yeah. alongside those students who are, who are struggling. Um, I, again, the, 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 I think the timing, the setting yourself a timer and being really intentional about how much you're going to work before you experience some sort of reward. Um, accountability, as you've said, making sure maybe someone's alongside you, pushing you towards that. Um, all of these things have really easy correlates in, in the, world of, the world of business and the world of sports, I think, because we know about collaboration and we know what teamwork does in terms mm -hmm. of um, spawning creativity. And then you, you've talked a lot about process. Um, I really, really encourage anyone out there who's, who's raising a kid or, or teaching students to engage with the work of Professor uh, Carol Dweck on growth versus fixed mindset and rewarding process over product. Okay? Because when you talk about a student perfectionist, you're talking about someone who believes their only worth is in the product, in the thing that they produce. We need to be rewarding the process. We need, to, we need students to be getting dopamine just from the journey. Right, because that's what's going to see them succeed in the long term, right? Steady, consistent process work. So that I, I had to tell a student just two weeks ago, when you hand in your assignment, that should not be the end of your thoughts about that assignment, right? It's not product done, move on. It's this is part of a process. I'm handing this to someone who's a little bit more expert in this field. They're going to give me their thoughts on my thoughts. I'm going to get this back, think about it again in a new state of mind, rework some of the things. And through that process, I'm ultimately going to be rewarded, not just with a, a good number on my page in red ink, but a new perspective on the world and a new skill set, hopefully. I don't know that we do a very good job of putting process over product uh, in, in modern education. And I think the, the cycle, even you mentioned the biomarkers, the biomarkers of our students' mental health are all the evidence I need that, that we need to be doing a better job emphasizing that. Mm -hmm. and, and another thing is too, is that 
a lot of what's a lot of what's missing in our education is what's missing in society. Mm. Right. Yeah. What a coincidence. So, well, I mean, it's it's always like that. Right. Yeah. It's it's like whatever issues we're having in our classroom are the bigger issues that we're having outside of our classroom. I always see that. Yeah. Right. I mean, even like I say, um, being able to have, you know, in classroom and out of classroom experience in this notion of our society constantly rewarding us for products, but also even beyond products, just anything tangible, right? Content. We always need, but we always need tangible markers. Mm -hmm. If we look at the way productivity is, um, is assessed and rewarded, right? We always need tangible objectives. So for example, you know, ever since we were in the industrial revolution with factories, right? It was about how much how many pieces did you get done? Or you know, in a corporate sense, we see uh, how long did it take you to go through these files, right? I mean, even my mother, and I saw her like this, where she would have to go, she was a life insurance underwriter and she had to go she would have to screen files. And everything is numerical. Mm. Right. So everything is measurable products. So when when students see their parents, you know, glorifying this notion of tangible products as a way of as attributing value to their work um, and what they do, that's the that's the that's the thing that actually kills our joy for our work all the time is that we're always worried about, well, you know, I feel like I'm doing a lot of great work, but my sales haven't gone up. Mm. Or I feel like I'm doing a lot of great work, but I have the same three customers that I had in the last 20 years and I'm not getting new customers. So there's no numbers that are changing. Right. So that's that's kind of the same idea as what you were saying earlier is that you know we're focused on what is the end product. If we don't have the end product, then there is no consummation of the value of our time. Yeah. Um, but the fact is, is that our time is the most valuable thing we have. Mm -hmm. And that's what we forget all the time, right? Even with mental health, which is something that is so intangible in a lot of ways. A lot of my clients will say, they'll be like, well, am I doing it right? I don't, I don't know. Like, do I know if it's working? I'm like, well, how do you feel? Yeah. You know, has your journey changed at all? And, and they'll say, yeah, it's actually helped a lot. I'm like, okay, so what is the evidence you need? What, what kind of evidence do you want to see? Yeah. Well, right? it, it, these sound like a lot of people who are raised in a system that, that, you know, it's as simple as imagining a student coming home and the parents asking, let me see that report card. And if it's good, we're going to put it on the fridge. And if it's not, we're going to have a talk. Mm -hmm. Right? Instead of, I don't need to see that report, report card because I'm so proud of seeing you sit down at that table for an hour every day for the last month right and it's been so it's such a joy sitting alongside you working with you and our relationship has improved and i can see you growing i don't care what that that number on that page is right your process is wonderful right and it's when i look at people coming out of grade 12 or people coming out of university it seems to me very much that though we are doing better though we are beginning to explore in a serious manner, the mental health implications uh, of our approaches to, to students, it still seems like we have a system that would rather, that would prefer a student who comes out of high school with a 100% average and no friends over a student who comes out of high school with a 75% average and a robust social life and, mm. and a support network, or a student who 
has a whole bunch of really nice lifestyle skills. They, they're able to cook. They, they value nature. They, they have some engagement with music. They have a creative outlet, right? They're, they're in close ties with their families, but they have a, a 70% GPA, right? Is that not a success, right? If, as opposed to a student who's six months away from a, a mental breakdown in their first term at university, yeah. Right. And How if it's not and if it? it's not at their teenage age, it's in their adult age. Yeah. I mean, we see adults, you know, break down all the time. Mm-hmm. I was one of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and again, it's it's this and this is what, why I'm so passionate about this work is that we've we've really we've really valued and glorified external success way more than we've ever valued internal success. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you're talking about, having those healthy relationships, having a healthy relationship with ourselves, um, you know, seeing a self-actualized teenager where they're confident and they're not comparing themselves and they're showing leadership skills. Um, and like you said, they've got creative outlets. I mean, that is what we want. It's just that our system needs to change to reward that. Yeah. Um, in in better ways. And right now, I find that the rewards that we're seeing in our society are much more tangible. Um, And so they need tangible prerequisites. Uh, So yeah, it's one of those things where we need change on a global, national, uh, local level, as well as down to the size of our small classroom. So yeah, the, the concepts that we share in this podcast are always overreaching in so many ways. I hope so. Um, one thing that, that has given me a lot of peace and, and uh, solace in this life, especially in recent years, is just the idea of taking care of my corner, right? Making, making sure that the, the sphere of influence, small though it may be that I have, um, is, is being respected and, and, and treated with a lot of these ideas, right? And, and if, if things are going to change, they're going to change from the bottom up and the top down. And mm-hmm. we, we, we're teachers. We, we have a chance to, to really do grassroots work, letting, letting these adolescents know that they are valued just, just for being themselves, just for waking up this morning and, and showing up in the classroom, for putting their efforts in and, and genuinely engaging in this human endeavor. Um, you're about to run into another human endeavor and in, in, in teach another class in preparation for exams coming up. Uh, before we let you go, I just want to kind of exchange our, our toolkits, if you will, like just our really concrete approaches to these students. What are we going to tell them in the coming days to give them the best chance to walk into an exam calm, confident, and comfortable, because right? mm-hmm. that's the state that they're going to perform well in, not crammed, stressed, and, and underslept. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell students, I, I walked around to a few classes today and talked about my, my three C's of exam preparation, which are uh, care, communication, and collaboration. So I tell them, step one, whatever your physical health situation is, take care of it. Get those eight hours of sleep every single night. It's sacred. And it's your best chance of remembering, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever it is you studied. Get some good food in you. We know how much things like omega-3s and, and, and those types of uh, compounds benefit the brain. You need the, the, the energy to think, right? So make sure that you're, you're putting some good fuel in your body. And exercise, right? Exercise to get rid of some of those, those hormones roiling around in you that are a product of that fight, flight, or freeze um, situation. Let's turn that into a state of calm and, and a state of confidence. So care communicate. We talked about it earlier. Raise your hand. Tell people you don't know what's going on. Grab a friend. Say, hey, can you explain this concept to me? Tell your teacher that you're experiencing some exam stress and you've, you've had some blackouts in the, in the past and maybe you could use some accommodation, right? And then collaborate, 
we know that, that creativity and, and you know, new ideas are the stuff of collaboration. So grab some friends, get into a study group, uh, break up the, the, the work so that each person is, is writing notes and maybe writing some quiz questions for each of you. Share that information amongst yourselves, quiz each other, hold each other accountable. Um, and I think eliminating the loneliness of, of the pursuit of, of academic ex excellence goes a long way to getting you to academic excellence. So three C's, care, communicate, collaborate, nice little package. That's my approach. So I don't know how you feel about that. Or if yeah, you I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. <laughs> I think that's super important, especially the care part. Mm. We always forget the care part. Um, again, like students and adults, we always forget the care part. Um, even myself, I, I always find that sometimes I, I lack on that because we're so focused on the productivity. We're so focused on, you know, getting it all done yeah. that we forget. And you then know. I'll care. Yeah. I'll, and I'll then care the care when we yeah. have time, right? Yeah. I mean, we used to get like the energy drinks and the all-nighters mm -hmm. and you know it was it was funny because it was like we actually were we felt glorified doing those things yeah. um so i'm very 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 huge advocate of of promoting that that eight hours of sleep and also i think that it's important for us to also train them on these executive functioning skills like one of the things that i wanted to mention earlier was knowing how long things take is a huge thing. Mm. Um, and that's why I like to know in the classroom, how long did it take you to do this part? How long did it take you to do that part? Because one thing that I noticed too is that sometimes students can be overconfident in how quickly they can carry out an, an assignment. Yeah. Um, so for studies, that's an amazing thing. For, for actual assignments, like final assignments that they're doing now, I think for me, it would definitely be breaking it down so break things down and schedule mm -hmm. those broke down tasks. Yes. Um, it's very much like the way I do my marking, right? I don't do all my marking in one weekend. I'll say, you know, today I'll do this assignment. Tomorrow I'll mark this assignment. I'll put that in my schedule, like you said, with the Pomodoro effect, very, very effective as well. Um, breaking it into smaller tasks. Again, asking for help as well. Looking for resources too. Like if you are looking for examples, we're, we have a beautiful uh, access to the internet now. We can mm -hmm. find resources, examples. I know a lot of people, they're very shy about communication. So try and help ourselves by giving us as much tools and as many resources as we can um, so that again, we're not working from scratch, that we're working from some kind of benchmark or foundation that can give us the confidence we need yeah. um, to, to deliver. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you're gonna hike up a mountain, you better be confident in your equipment. You better have a schedule because you're not climbing at all today. Right. Right. And uh, I, I think that, that that old line, I don't know if it's Confucius, but the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, right? That's Just right. get yourself, don't leave the page blank, right? Get yourself writing, even, even if it's gibberish, or get yourself studying, like get yourself sat down, get yourself in a position to succeed, and then watch the flow kind of take over. Um, like when I'm running, to bring it back to the metaphor of running for the umpteenth time, um, if I look at a hill, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll do poorly at it, right? I'll be stressed about it and I'll be thinking about, oh, this is so difficult. If I don't know that I'm on a hill, as often happens when you're running south to north in Toronto, for example, uh, you look backwards and only then do you realize, oh, I just climbed 100 meters, hmm. right? Um, and I think the same applies for a lot of our processes. Once you're in it, if you can begin 
um, you'll be surprised how far you've come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebecca, we could and I hope will spend many, many more hours talking about this stuff. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll look forward very much to having you back again. Uh, looking forward to seeing how our students do, hopefully with the, the support of yourself, uh, myself, and, and all the great teachers and staff here at Braemar. Uh, best of luck to all of us. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Any, it's any uh, let the games begin, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, here we go. Um, we'll see. And I mean, shout out to all the teachers out there who are going to be spending dozens of hours in the in the coming days and weeks, uh, mm-hmm. making sure these students have actionable feedback and are able to move forward with the knowledge they've gained over the last term. Thank you for what you do. Absolutely. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for having me, all of you. Sure. And uh, yeah, may, may we continue to see both internal and external success in our students. Well said. On that, Thanks for being with us. Uh, Looking forward to being joined next week by uh, Dr. Diana Breacher from Toronto Metropolitan University, talking about more ways that uh, students are gonna be able to care for themselves and engage in the process of authenticity and actualization. Can't wait. Thanks for being here with us today.